The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Christmas Eve, 1968, as Apollo 8 orbited the moon for the very first time, the greatest scientific achievement that mankind had ever produced was acknowledged with a reading of Genesis 1. I just want that to sit on you for a moment, that in 48 years, that's how far we have come. That today, if an astronaut would beam back a message from the Bible, he would be ridiculed and slandered and treated with disdain. Our world has adopted a completely different worldview, a completely different way of assigning meaning and truth and where things came from and what they actually are. You may even argue with me, well, I doubt the astronauts actually believe that, maybe, but they read it. And they still lived in a world that received it. So I recognize today, I, I preach in a different world. That I bring Genesis 1 this morning to bear in a different way of thinking. I think this will be clear through the rest of the message. I'm not here to answer to you. I am here today to tell you what God has said 
and what God has done. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts and our minds need to be humbled today if we are to hear your word. I confess that we want you to answer to us when you have spoken in such a way that we are to answer to you. So I pray, Spirit of God, now that you would do a work and lead in the speaking and preaching of your word and the receiving of your word and that you would speak into the hearts and lives of men and women. For your word is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the very depths of the human being. So pierce us, we pray. Speak to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God. This word, God, dominates the entire first chapter. If you pay attention, you will notice that 35 times his name is used just in chapter one. So what follows is how God brought forth this world from a primitive condition of desolation and waste. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That God from this primitive condition of desolate and waste brings fullness and order. It is not the purpose of Genesis to tell the reader how this chaos came to be. He just says that it was. The point of the book of Genesis, if we will listen carefully, is God. Now, if we impose our modern questions on the text, we're going to mishear the creation narrative. It was written with an intentional meaning. It was written to an original audience, to the people of Israel. God had meaning to them. He had a goal in mind, and that same meaning and that same goal speak to us today, and that is this. That God sovereignly spoke his good creation into existence with purpose. I'll repeat it. God sovereignly spoke his good creation into existence with purpose. So to the ancient world who first heard this message, this is not the result of pagan gods. This is not the result of multiple gods. This is the result of the Lord God. And to you, the modern audience, this is not the result of chance. It's God. 
So what we see here as we read Genesis chapter 1 is the good news of the sovereign creator. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Start with me in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Just like my wife assembles the ingredients to which she's about to cook a meal, God assembled and created. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him to understand? In other words, God's not concerned with how high your IQ is. And God's not concerned with the depth of your education or the lack of mine. God didn't consult me or you. God and God alone created He sovereignly created. In other words, he didn't answer to anyone in how he did it. How does he do it? He speaks creation into existence. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And it was so. And this is repeated over and over again. And God said, and it was so. You see, God's will is irresistible. At his divine command, it is. God is so powerful that he merely speaks to bring things into existence and to make things happen. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God's creative work was effortless. He spoke. And the universe came into existence. He spoke and from nothing there was. All three dimensions, space, time, and matter, all brought into being by God's word. Creation is an expression of God's will. And when we think rightly of creation, it underscores for us the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God is king and Lord over all. Not only does he speak creation into existence, he purposely creates. Now, 
Listen carefully to what I'm going to say next. I'm not into numerology. I'm not Nostradamus. I don't find numbers everywhere, and these numbers are significant. But the first chapter of Genesis is a beautiful piece of literature. It is masterfully crafted. The number seven, which is the number of perfection, dominates Genesis chapter one. Let me just give you some examples. The first verse has seven Hebrew words. The second, 14. There are seven days mentioned. Seven times God saw that it was very good. Seven times he says, and it was so. 21 times the heavens are mentioned. 21 times the earth, 35 times God. All of these multiples of seven. Then the number 10, which is the number of fullness. 10 times God said, God said, God said. Further, if you take the narrative and you look at it closely, you see that what God is doing in days one through three is an answer to the formlessness that the earth was without form. And a closer look, you will see that days four through six, God is dealing with the emptiness, the void of the earth. And if you continue to look closely, you'll see that day five mirrors day one. I mean, day four mirrors day one, and day five mirrors day two, and day six mirrors day three. Watch. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was, (coughs) excuse me, there was evening, and there was morning the first day. See, God says light, there's light, Then he calls the light day. He names it. So right away you see the act of the sovereign dominion of God here. Naming is an act of sovereignty. So God, as the creator, brings names to that which he is doing. Day two. Verse six, and he said, let there be an expanse in the midst of waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters and were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. All right, let's first start with the word heaven. Heaven in Hebrew has two meanings. First, the dwelling place of God. Second, sky. What it means here is the sky. Doesn't mean the dwelling place of God. God created the sky. The expanse. He separated the water from the water. Where's rain come from? Sky. God separated the water. Molecules up here get together in a cloud. They rain from the water that's down here in a liquid form on the earth. God made that separation, and the separation between that is the sky. It's perfect. It's how living things are here. And God created this expanse. So that living things could be there. Day three, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And then the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. 
And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit bearing tree, trees bearing fruit in which of their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kind and trees bearing fruit in which it is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. You see what God's doing here? He's dividing the dry land from the sea and on the dry land, God creates vegetation. And quite literally in the Hebrew, it says vegetation that vegetates. In other words, this ongoing cycle of living things through seeds, reproducing themselves, living plants and trees, reproducing themselves on the earth. So you have this beautiful, fertile earth. So here's what God's saying. That fertility and vegetation are not the results of your depraved pagan gods that you're making these ridiculous sacrifices to. Study any culture, ancient culture, and you will find that they're looking toward and trying to find these pagan ritual gods who will do for them. God says, I made it and I made it in such a way that it reproduces itself. If you don't believe that, just watch what happens here in the next few weeks. How does God start with his creation? He says, remember the lilies of the valley? What's the first thing pops up around here? The lilies. I'm, I'm God. I'm the one that makes this happen. I'm the one that causes the vegetate to vegetate. So he brings order to the formlessness. Then he brings fullness to the emptiness. Day one, he creates light and dark. Right? Got that? So day four, what does God then create? Somebody said it, the sun and the moon. Here's what's interesting. He doesn't call it the sun or the moon. I'm going to answer why in just a second. Let's look at it. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the light from the, the day from the night. And let there be signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. <coughs> and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, Creates these two great lights, one to rule the day, one to rule the night. He establishes that this is going to create seasons, days, years. Doesn't say it, but weathers and tide. So he creates these two lights and then, and the stars. I just love how that's added, and the stars. Now notice, he doesn't call them the sun or the moon. Why? Because if you study any ancient culture, they all worshipped what? The sun. So those of you who've been struggling on, you know, you got, you got day and night in the first day and then God doesn't create the, the sun to the, to the fourth day. I mean, that's just not scientifically adding up. Okay, well, wait a minute. Before you get your science on top of that, just study the end of the book. There's gonna be light with no sun forever. So just want you to think about that first. Number two, here's what God's doing. By creating the sun and the moon on the fourth day, he's separating himself from all the pagan deities of the world and saying, don't you worship the sun and the moon. They're my creation. They're what I have made. 
He says this emphatically in Deuteronomy 4.19. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them that the, that the Lord your God is allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. And those of you out there going, you know, people, people don't do that. People don't worship the sun and the moon. How about the stars? How about the people who got up this morning and read their astrology? We modern scientific people who Folks, we're just as susceptible to worship the creation instead of the creator. Romans 1 says that's going to happen over and over again. Day five. Remember day two, made the waters? Remember, separated the waters? Remember this? And the sky? So what do you think he's going to do on day five? He makes fish and birds. Fish and birds to fill up to swarm the ocean and to swarm the skies. And it even says this, that he made the sea creatures. Literally, he made the sea monsters. In other words, all these things, you people, these people are writing about these things out in the ocean, that there's these gods in the ocean. God made those. He made Leviathan. He made the big things that are out in the ocean. They're his handiwork. He made them. They six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Now there's a couple things here. God made the domestic animals and the wild animals. Here's what it's saying. A lion is a lion. And a horse is a horse and a frog is a frog and a snake is a snake. God made them according to their kind. He made species. He, he made these animals to stay within the boundaries of what they were to be. And that remains so. But God did something else on day six. And, and Genesis does not want you to miss this. There's something distinct God does. He makes man. And he doesn't just make man. God makes man after his image. Now we're going to part way with modern culture here. Because everything's God to modern culture, then everything's God. God parts way with modern culture and says, man is distinct. God has made man in his image. Let us make man in our image, verse 26. So right away you have the divine plan of God. Let us make man. You say, what is us? What is it? Who's God talking to? The answer is himself. God is speaking to himself, not to someone else. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the perfect triune God speaking to himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Like not exactness. And let them have dominion over the, flat, over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you have the divine plan, now you have the divine pattern. The pattern is the image of God. 
Now notice the repetition. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. It is God's work that we are made in his image. Now let's just think of a few illustrations here. You study any culture, ancient or modern, study any culture, and they will take the image of the king, leader, or president and put it on stuff. Study it and find out. We do it here. Just reach in your pocket and take out a bill. You're going to have the image of people who let us. Now, here's what God's saying. Here's what God's saying. My image is not on a building. My image is not on the side of a mountain. My image is on man. That's where I've stamped my image. This is what is in my image. Now, folks, the lack of of thinking about being made in the image of God is what affects and has affected the world for so long. It's what creates classism and separating people. This is a quotation from ancient Assyria. The king wrote, quote, a free man is the shadow of the God. The slave is the shadow of a free man, but the king, the king is the very image of God. Now folks, subtly, it's what people believe in our culture. You say, I don't agree with you. Okay, track with me for a second. Why are all these famous, celebrity, powerful people so upset with the rest of us in America? What's the problem? The problem is, is that everybody's not doing what they think we ought to do. And they're incredulous that how, how, could, we, how could we not? What, what, what is wrong with you people? Because there's, there's an air in our society that there are the elites. And the elites, man, they're godlike. They're our idols. Then you got the people in the middle in the world, the free people. Oh, the free people, now they're close close to free people or they're close to being almost godlike. Then you got the enslaved people of the world, the, the horrible, wretched people of the world, and they're less than God. Listen to me. The most sinful man or woman alive on this planet was made in the image of God. Everyone Male and female. God's doing something very distinct here. Men are not higher than women from the onset. So this accusation that the, the Bible treats men as superior, you're wrong. You're just wrong. From the onset, God says, male and female, he created them in the image of God. Now let me pause here. We're still thinking about the divine pattern. This is God's pattern for humanity. He made them male and female, not genderless. God made them male and female for very expressed reasons and purposes that we're gonna deal with two weeks from now as we unpack the second chapter, <coughs> I'm sorry, of Genesis. Now, with that in our minds, I want to move to another question. How should we look at or judge God's creation? 
How should we see it? The answer is that we should see the good news of the good creation. We should see it the way God sees it. And God saw that it was what? Good. Seven times he says good or very good. So it starts with the light, that the light was good. And you'll notice in the second day, he doesn't say anything about being good because he's still working with forming the earth, separating the waters, and then he's going to do the land and the sea. Once he does that, then it follows by it's good. So the character of God's creation then is declared good. So that means, or can mean, beautiful. That what God has done is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that God has made. It also means it's something useful. God has made something that's useful to him, to us. And that this usefulness happens because it's good in that it operates according to its purpose. It does the way God intended it to do. So as a reason, God stops, verse 31, and saw everything that he made. And behold, he says, was very good. So completed creation brings the response from God that it is very good. So as as we debate in our minds, I want you to think this with me, as we debate in our minds the plausibility or the trustworthiness of Genesis chapter 1, ultimately what we're calling in the question is the goodness of God. What we're calling in the question is the goodness of God's creation. Let's go to the New Testament for the rest of their message. James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now listen carefully to me. We do not worship the creation. We worship the good creator who has given us a good creation. And we acknowledge it as such. You say, Pastor, I'm not tracking with you. I don't know what what you're talking about. Good. I I would say this. I would say this. Many, Many of us in this room are probably just indifferent to creation. If we're indifferent, then we're not seeing creation the way God sees it. But some of you, some of you have grown up in such a fearful atmosphere that everything's sinful and everything's bad that you can adopt a pagan philosophy that everything spiritual is good and everything material is evil now this is where paul is speaking to timothy in first timothy chapter four because where paul or where timothy finds himself pastoring preaching He's among a people who were pagan people who have come to faith in Christ who do not have a framework and an understanding of God's good creation. And as a result of that, they were making judgments, adopting their pagan philosophy that material things are bad and they were treating them as such. So Paul writes to Timothy and he says, everything created by God is what? Good. How much of it? Everything, everything created by God is good. It does not say everything that man creates is good. And that's where we get into the rub. 
That man takes some of what God's made and mixes it together and makes something different. That's not good. It's not helpful. I'm not saying everything man creates is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying man can mix up some TNT for himself, all right? And harm himself with it. But everything that God has made is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word. So when we, when we hold something that God has made, it's made holy by the word. Not because I speak it in the holy. It's because I look at it in view of the word of God and I see that's good. God made that. Which then leads me to prayer, to thanksgiving, to thank God for that which he has made and that which he has created. So what I'm saying is this. The fact that God's creation is good affirms the benefit of the material world for human beings. God not only made it good, God made the world for our good. Now, how do we need to apply Genesis chapter one to our hearts and lives? Turn to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. Just be careful. I'm going to try to work this tension all the way through the study of Genesis. There are going to be things we learn in Genesis that we need to do. But primarily, this is a book about God. So it needs to, we need to come away from our study of Genesis with what we need to believe. What do we need to believe first? That all of creation comes from and is held fast by the sovereign creator. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So the point is that God is absolutely sovereign over all matter. And as a result of that, that he is sovereign over all things that he has made, that demands that we acknowledge his sovereignty. And if we're going to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, then we must submit to him as the creator. The one who has made all things and the one who holds all things together. And so just think about this. We'll get there. God's created an order in the world and he holds it together. He releases that for a moment. Remember, he separates the waters of the sky. He, he releases that for a moment and he opens the fountains of the deep. And what does he do? He destroys the world with a flood. He did that. Because he holds all things. Now, this God who made all things and this God who holds all things demands my allegiance. Now, let me speak to the cynical mind for a moment. I can hear you. 
like the lady who came up to me last week after the service and said, my neighbor's an atheist. I've been trying to talk to him. He keeps throwing this question at me and I don't know how to answer. Here's this, here's this question. How do you believe this good God would let people go into a movie theater and execute dozens of people? How, do you, how, can, how can you believe in a God like that? I said, you go back and you tell him this. The reason people go in the movie theaters and execute dozens of people is because of people like you. What, what do you mean? I said, you go tell him because people have rejected that there's a God. There's no reason to keep people from going into movie theaters and blowing people away. Because there's no one to answer to but me. You listen to me, brothers and sisters. This just doesn't have implications for you. This has implications for the world you live in. The more the world throws off this point, this belief, that God is sovereign and holds all things together, the worse it's going to get. It will not get better. Man's not arriving at, at think he's getting better. It's not, it's not happening. And you look into the places in the world that have completely rejected God and I ask you a question, is that city better? Is that nation better? And I ask you personally in your life, you reject who God is and you reject his sovereignty over your life. Does that make your life better? How's that working out for you? Now here's the deal. You feel this tension here that this God who creates and then you got man who rebels. I'm getting to Genesis 3 now. Just think about this. God makes this perfect place for these two people and says, just don't eat that tree right there. And what do they do? They eat that tree. So look in verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning from the firstborn from the dead and everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is what blows my mind. This sovereign God who created this perfect world and said, it's good. It's good. Who makes man in his image, who then rebels against him and brings the consequences of sin into the world. This God comes himself. and lives a sinless life and dies a sinner's death in the place of sinners to reconcile us to himself. And for this reason, a name has been given to him that is above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. You see, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over my life and yours, which leads me to the last application. All creation exists for him. Verse 16, all things were created through him and for him, for him. That's why God made the earth. That's why God made the living things. That's why God made man in his image. It exists for him. Now I want you to turn to the book of Revelation and I want to show you something. 
The book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's opening up to us that which is coming. And here we have a picture of what's going to transpire in the presence of God. And there are three songs revealed to us in chapters four and five. And I just want you to see the content of these three songs. And as you're looking at the content of these three songs, I want you to ask yourself the question, is Genesis one important? Song number one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In the beginning, God, self-existent, preeminent, sovereign God who is holy, holy, holy. Song number two. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Song number one is your God. Song number two, you created. You made everything. Song number three. Worthy are you, I'm in chapter five, verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of, and priests to our God and they shall reign on, what? What? The earth. You say, huh? Read the end of the book. He makes something brand new, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where his redeemed will rule and reign forever and ever. You know why? Because he is the sovereign God who creates. And he is the sovereign God who saves, and he is the sovereign God whom all creation and new creation exists for him. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I, 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 I plead now on behalf of men and women. I, I, I plead on behalf of our minds and our sensibilities we could get up from here and, and we could argue that science wasn't properly dealt with or that was really heavy and there wasn't enough jokes and, and it needed to be a little bit more lighthearted. God, we live in a world that's rejected you and all the consequences are around us every day. And it's sweeping people, it's sweeping our children up in it, God, because we, we have failed to fully recognize and we have failed to, to come before you as, as we should to acknowledge that you are the sovereign God who has created all things and you've created all things for yourself. And that you have made a way through redemption for those of us, all of us of humanity who have, who have rebelled against you. That you have made a way, that you make us new creations in Christ that we might come and worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, as we take up this song, God, I pray 
I pray that you will do a work in the hearts and lives of people, that you will call those outside of Christ to yourself and save them. And I pray for those who are believers, that they would yield before you even now. We pray and we plead in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.